you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. Hey, I am so delighted to be able to be with you tonight. Uh, it's just an honor and a privilege. Thank you, Pastor, for your introduction and for the kind words. I'm really not going to take time to tell you more about me and my resume tonight. Um, I suspect that you know enough for us to get into this, and we can talk about it offline, or next week I may have a little bit more time in my presentation as well. Tonight we've got so much. You guys, if you've looked at the outline, I hope you've got a copy. If you don't, it's at the back table. And if you raise your hand, Pastor Travis or somebody will get you a copy and can bring that around to you. But um, we've got so much we need to cover tonight that uh, if you'll just permit me to get into the material, then next week we'll, uh, we'll spend some time on that if we need to. Okay, let me give you a quote as we start. We're going to be talking about theology of mission tonight. Uh, but here's a quote from John Piper. Uh, in a book that he wrote 30 years ago, he said this, quote, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. End of quote. Now that's an important quote because it reminds us of the place and importance of mission. And what we're doing tonight is we're talking about this idea of mission. And um, let me just put it like this. Mission originates and culminates with God. You heard that in the Piper quote. It's his work. It's not our work. We're not called to bring our mission into any local context or geography. Instead, we're called to partner with God in his mission. He chooses to involve us for his glory, for our benefit at the same time. So our objective tonight is to help us understand what the Bible teaches about the mission and our part in it. So as we're going through this tonight, you may be thinking about, well, what is my part in God's mission? You may want to try to decipher that even as we talk together this evening. Um, we got any Trekkies here? Come on, admit it. Okay, I'm a Trekkie. I've been a Star Trek fan since I was a kid watching it in the early first series with my parents at home back in the 60s. But if you've watched any of Star Trek or you know anything about Star Trek, you know that they talk about the prime directive. The prime directive is the overarching purpose of why they go, why they do. And you hear them every week as the episode opens up talking about, you know, we're to boldly go where no one has gone before. This kind of idea to seek out new planets and on and on. So here's what here's my point in this. When you go back and you read the originators of that whole idea, a guy named Gene Kuhn wrote up the, the, the rationale behind developing the prime directive. And when he put that in the lips of the original captain on the Enterprise, a guy named Jonathan Archer, uh, he, he said it like this. Now, this is really important. Catch this. Someday my people are going to come up with some sort of doctrine, something that they say that we can and can't do out here, shouldn't or shouldn't do. But until someone tells me what they've drafted, that directive, I'm going to have to remind myself every day, hear this now, that we didn't come out here to play God. 
Did you catch that? Something just happened to the microphone. I know, right at the key point, too. It was going so good. It was going so good. Let me just read that last line one more time. Until someone tells me they've drafted that directive, still not, okay, good. Then I'm going to have to remind myself every day that nobody sent us out here to play God. We've already got a God, right? And when we talk about the mission that God has called us to, it is not our job to come up with the mission. He already has the mission. It is our job to partner with him in that mission. You see, if we do our own mission, each and every one of us are going to get caught up in this thing or that thing or some other thing. But God's given us a mission. And so I want us to think about that. Now, last week, we talked about what the Bible teaches. Pastor Travis did an excellent job of overviewing the missionary God and the commissioned nation and the restorative Messiah. You remember, if you were here last week, the sending church, the completed task, all of that. And he, he gave us some key verses that outlined and, and spoke to each one of those issues. In fact, Pastor Travis, yes, last week you said every event in the Bible is a missional event to bring glory to God. You remember saying that? Yes, sir. All right. I remember it too because I wrote it down right here in my notes. And that's a really important comment that we need to pick up on tonight as we think about this. Now, oftentimes when we, uh, when we talk about uh, mission, we add an S. But mission does not equal missions. We alluded to that last week, but let me give you a little bit more detail on it tonight. Missions is a programmatic, usually through sending of materials or resources or helping with an event type response where we send teams of people to a need that is presented somewhere else beyond ourselves in which we can, we choose, oh, this is something that we would like to do or we have the ability to do and are willing to serve. But mission is different. Mission is much broader. It speaks to the total redemptive purpose of God to establish his kingdom and consequently our role in it. It encompasses missions, but everything we do as God's people should be a part of fulfilling his mission. Now, back in 1977, that's a long time ago for some of us in this room. Some of you can't even remember that far back. That's when I first got involved in missions. I was a college student. I finished my freshman year at Washtenaw Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and was trying to figure out how I could be involved in missions that summer. And so I went to our Baptist Student Union office and talked to the folks there, and they told me about an opportunity in New Hampshire to go up and be involved with the Home Mission Board, what we called previously to what we now call the North American Mission Board. And so I went for 10 weeks, spent time at a coffee house in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, sharing the gospel with people, seeing many people saved, seeing fledgling churches in a part of our, uh, our country that was a pioneer area where there were very few churches and even more people that did not even know they could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It just blew my mind. I mean, I had grown up in the Deep South, and I, I thought everybody knew they could have a personal relationship with Jesus. But person after person after person I met did not know. And when many of them were invited to make a commitment to follow Christ, they were eager and willing, which also blew my mind. I thought to myself, why aren't we telling more people? 
Because God has done his work in preparing the hearts of people to be responsive to the opportunity to become disciples of Christ. They just hadn't had the opportunity. So those 10 weeks became a lifetime. Do you hear me on this? It was not just a missions project. It became a part of the mission for me to commit my life to. The mission of God. And so I think it all starts with us talking about the nature of God. Okay, so we've had systematic theology here and we don't need to go back and review all of it, but there are a few things that are pretty integral to our understanding of, of God, his nature and how it plays out in the role of mission. You see, God is the same today as he was at creation and even before. His name Yahweh tells us this. In Exodus 3.14, tell them, I am that I am. We'll come to that next week in our Sunday message. But Malachi 3.6 tells us as well, I, the Lord, don't change. And the author of Hebrews reminds us of the same when he speaks of Jesus, right? He says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, forever. So we keep that in mind as we think about these things that are elements in God's nature. Now, in the midst of all of these elements with regard to its work, it's important to note that he is sovereign. He is loving. He is missional. Those three things. Let me, let me speak to each of them for a minute. My wife says that most people in America don't know what sovereign means. And I'm not picking on her, but um, let me explain that. And, and it has to do with this idea uh, that we're, we don't have kings and queens in our country, so we don't talk about sovereigns in our land. So I had to go back to the dictionary and look it up. And when I looked it up, it said, this is the supreme and ultimate ruler, the authority in all things. That's what we mean by sovereign. Okay, so that's God. In our lives and in all of creation, he is the sovereign. He is love too. Now I'll tell you that when we talk about love in this world today, we don't talk about it the way the Bible talks about it. Pastor Travis has spoken to this many, many times, but God's kind of love, the agape love that is in the scripture, is a kind of love that is selfless. It is uh, incredibly generous. It is outgoing and taking initiative toward others, and it's sacrificial in its nature toward all. That is the kind of picture that is painted. It's not a picture that is painted like the love that we hear in this country or out of Hollywood that is lustful, that is narcissistic, that is focused on what it can do for me. Totally different, God's kind of love. And then you've got this idea of missional. Now, that word is just the, the noun mission turned into an adjective with the A-L ending, okay? So let's, let's think about it this way. We have adversity and we had adversary all. So now all of a sudden we have something that's opposing us, but it's not the opponent. It's just something that's opposing us. In this instance, we've got a mission, but we have someone who is living out mission. And so when we talk about God being missional, we talk about this idea of God so loved the world that he gave, right? That he pursues us, that he initiates in his relationship with us, that he reveals to us all that we need. And this pursuit is known as the missio dei, at least that's what scholars call it. it it's just the Latin words for mission of God. So why does God want this mission realized? Well, the experience is that he desires relationship with his creation. 
from the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis 1 and 3, all the way to the new heaven and earth in Revelation 21 and 22, he desires for us to dwell with him. And to that end, he elects a people. That means he selects those that he is going to use to be a part of this for a relationship and purpose. Ephesians 1, 4 speaks to that when he says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then he gives revelation, mostly through his son and then through his word, the Bible. But there are some other ways we don't probably have time to get into it tonight, especially with preliterate people that he speaks to them through creation and such and conscience. And then in Hebrews 1, 2, it says to us in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And then all of this is done to provide reconciliation. That's one of the words that's used to talk about our relationship when we come into fellowship with God. Uh, other words are pardon, redemption, justification. We'll see this again in a few minutes. So how are you relating to God through his mission? How are you relating to God through his mission? Well, it might help if we talk about what the mission of God is then, right? So let's do that. Ultimately, the mission is to bring glory to God. Now, this is experienced and uh, established in what we read in the scripture called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's his reign overall. It's not a geographic location, but it is the totality of God's reign, his rule over those that he has created. And not just people, but that's the primary sphere that we're going to think about in just a minute. In fact, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God over a hundred times in the Gospels. So you know it's pretty important, especially when the church is only mentioned two or three times in the Gospels. This kingdom concept is something that comes from his very first message, where he says there in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So we need to think about that as we work our way through our time together tonight. This, message takes, this mission takes place in three spheres or dimensions that we're going to look at tonight. Um, the first is the human dimension. This is done through the proclamation of the good news to all who are separated from him. All of us have disfigured his image through sin, and we need to be reconciled to God. So you've got some verses that are listed there, like John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And Mark 10, 52, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and me to God. I just, love, I just love that verse. It takes me back to my experience in Washita that freshman year. We had uh, what we called Christian Focus Week, where we had some guest speakers and singers come in and, and kind of uh, minister to us and share with us and lead us in worship to, to better understand the calling of God upon our lives. And I'll never forget stumbling in. I literally stumbled in one night to a session that was taking place, uh, a man who was the minister of worship at a church in Little Rock was leading in some worship celebration time. And I came in and 
and I was sitting there and I was worshiping God. And then as he finished, I, I thought at first that was it. You know, we were done. <laughs> but the small diminutive lady got up afterwards and said, hi, my name is Mary Smith. And Mary Smith, can you think of a more nondescript name than that? <laughs> Mary Smith began to tell her story, how that she lived in uh, Northwest upstate New York, and how she'd been in this country and had never known that she could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Never knew it. Until one night, her neighbor said to her, Hey, Mary, you doing anything tonight? And she said, no, I haven't got any plans. She said, well, why don't you come to me over to our church? We've got a guest speaker here tonight, and, and he's going to be talking and sharing from this book we call the Bible, and, and you're going to love it. You're going to love the people and the opportunity to experience God speaking uh, powerfully in the things that he's written in this book. And Mary said she hesitated, but she agreed. She hadn't made many friends in the area. And she was looking forward to the opportunity to spend some time with her neighbor. So she went. And that night, for the very first time in her life, she heard that she could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? She committed her life to following him. The very first time she heard it. Well, Mary is now standing in front of me in the music hall at Washington Baptist University, sharing her testimony and issuing, as it were, a Macedonian call. Come over and help us. There are many more Mary Smiths in this country. I told you about my experience. It was the very next day. I mean, tears were rolling down my face. The very next day, I headed to that Baptist Student Union office and said, I'm here to figure out how I can be involved in missions next summer. Tell me what I can do. And the lady standing next to me was a student two years older than me. And she said, have you ever thought about coming to New Hampshire? My dad runs a ministry with the Home Mission Board in New Hampshire. How about working with us? And that's how it all started for me. You see, God has an amazing way to pull us in to being a part of his mission and doing the work he's called to do. This is the human dimension. And we've got to start by recognizing that there are people all around us. They're not just in the Northeast anymore. They're not just in the Northwest anymore. They're right on your street and my street here in Greenville and Simpsonville and Greer and Taylor's and on and on. Uh, they're here and they need to know the gospel as well. Now that's the primary part of the mission and it's our part of the mission. We're gonna get back to that in a little while. But there's two other parts to the mission that I wanna be sure that you catch in what God's doing. And it, second is the supernatural or you might prefer the word cosmic dimension to what's going on. And what do I mean by that? Well, what God does through the sending of Jesus Christ, uh, the wisdom of God is declared in the defeat of Satan before all the supernatural world, all angelic beings, everyone else, they know this. And the Bible proclaims this as well to us. First John 3, 8, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Ephesians 4, 8, for it says, when he ascended on high, he took captives captive and gave gifts to men. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 talks about the preeminence of Christ over everything. And let me just summarize it. He says, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and by him all things are held together so that he might come to have first place in everything. 
And then that same writer, Paul, in the next chapter and the 15th verse goes on to say, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Hebrews 2.14 goes on to say, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. You getting the idea here? And in a passage that I didn't even post on that, which I think is really actually pretty important, Mark 1.24, you might want to write that in. Jesus encounters in the Gospel of Mark his first demoniac, person that is demon-possessed. And the demon speaks to him from that person, and he says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, those of us that have studied the original language know there's no punctuation marks in it. And in fact, um, you could, and some translations do, literally read that. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You have come. To destroy us. It's not a question. They know. They know. There's a third element in this mission of God as well, and it has to do with creation. The creation dimension has to do with its restoration and renewal. Now, remember, when the Garden of Eden was created, it was beautiful, it was glorious, it was exactly the way God wanted it. But when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, we know that all of a sudden things got much more difficult. Sin marred creation, too. And when it marred creation, we were told that our work would be hard. We would have to toil with the land. There would be thorns and thistles and everything else that would come with that in life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, uh, Paul writes about it this way. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. You see, it's been marred and disfigured by our sin, the sin that's entered the life of humanity as a result of that. But Isaiah 65 and 17 through 25 talks about that picture of a, a, I will create new heavens and a new earth. You know the passage, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. They will not do what is evil or destroy anything on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. And then in Revelation 20 and 21, particularly in chapter 22, verses one through five, the beginning of the very last chapter in the Bible. Then he showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal. It's not polluted, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be, hear this, any curse. You see, God is about doing all of these things through his mission in the redemptive and restorative work that he is bringing glory to his own name by calling all these things back into a place where they can be in reconciliation with him. So how are we doing in bringing glory to God, our part in the dimension, the human dimension as well? Well, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but I wanna talk about Jesus and his role first. He is the missionary. Um, and I'll tell you why I use that word in just a minute, but his life and his work is, is uh, absolutely integral. We cannot talk about the redemptive work of God on this planet or in the cosmos without Jesus. Jesus is central and key to the accomplishment of the mission, right? 
He came as a man, and last week, uh, Pastor Travis reminded us that that word, he dwelt among us, and John 1.14 is a word, tabernacled. It literally means that he pitched his tent for a short time, actually with us, rubbing shoulders with us, walking among us, and helping us to have the opportunity to, to see him on mission from the Father, for the Father. Philippians 2, 6 and 11 also talks about him when it reminds us when, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And as you skip down to the very end in verse 11, it says, why? To the glory of God, the Father. There it is. That's the mission purpose again. We are being reminded of it. And so Jesus in his own ministry here on earth says over and over and over again in scripture that he was sent, sent. 38 times Jesus is mentioned as being sent from God and that's just in God, John's gospel alone. Just one book out of the New Testament. He also talks about how he has come to this earth, how he came more than 30 times in the New Testament, words that speak to the deliberative work of his mission with the Father while he was here. The inspired writer of Hebrews later on calls him the chief apostle in uh, chapter three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the chief apostle and high priest of our confession. This picture that is painted for us is that Jesus is the first one. Apostle means sent out one. Much as we talk about missionaries being sent to the foreign field or to some other place to minister, Jesus was sent from the Father to us. And so he becomes the incarnation of missionary for us in our experience here upon earth. Now, some of us have been sent on missions to a variety of different places. But Jesus, in his work, he did something that none of us could ever do. His death and resurrection literally finished the work necessary for the fullness of God's mission to be accomplished. In John 19.30, he, on the, hanging on the cross, uses that word, one word in the original language. It is finished, three words in English, which is given in a particular verbal form that says this word has been completed with ongoing, never-ending impact. The effect of that word continues on indefinitely into the future, eternity for you and me. It has been finished, completed, wrapped up. However, in God's sovereignty, he chooses for it not to be fully realized yet. And what I mean by that is it's not fully experienced, this finished nature of the work. Why is that? I don't know about you, but I would like it to be finished and us to have that kind of wrapped up with a bow on top of it. Well, God chooses to wait. God chooses to wait, exercising his own sovereignty. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not desiring any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He, he waits for another person to come into relationship with him and another person to come into relationship with him and another person. He is patient. He is so, so very patient to all those who will call upon his name, 
Romans 10, 13, we talked about that last week as well. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God is with us. God has come to us. How are you experiencing that in your life and in your own walk with him? Even today, have you recognized he's with us? Well, we talked last week about the people of God and the work of God being a part of a means to an end. So I want us to do that again. I want us to revisit that. A little bit different slice this time. Uh, to that end, literally God has selected a people. Abram and his descendants, which we know as Israel, become that means to an end in the Old Testament. The world would know of his salvation. That's the goal. That's the objective through these people that have been chosen to be this means to an end. He establishes a covenant with them. His role is faithfulness to his promises. I'm going to keep my promises to you, he tells Israel. Your role is to be obedient to my commands. And among those commands is to take the message to the nations, to all peoples, so that they too would be blessed as he told Abram, I'm going to bless you so that all people through you will be blessed. So God cuts that covenant with Abram. But Israel fails to accomplish their part in that mission. So the church then in the New Testament, the called out ones, that's the idea behind the idea of church, receive a new covenant. And that new covenant based upon... <laughs> Oh my, here we go again. I don't know what's happening. It's probably me. I'm kind of dancing back here, can you tell? That's right. Maybe I'm just trying to get taller. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so we're going to go to microphone number three now, and we're going to say that the church, the called out ones, are receiving this new covenant based on what Jesus did, also as a means to an end. This is really important. We're not the end game. The kingdom is. The kingdom is. But we're a means to an end. We're now sent to proclaim the gospel to all peoples. Mark 1.15, we read it earlier, talks about how Jesus said the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Pastor Travis last week took us to Romans chapter 10. How then can they call on him who they not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are what? Sent. So as followers of Christ, we're actually given five commissions in the scripture. I'm going to hurry through these very quickly. But um, uh, the whole point of this exercise is to kind of overwhelm you with how many times this comes back over and over and over again. And they're focused differently. So don't miss that. The first one is in John 20, 21. It's the mandate of our mission, our sentness, the fact that we are sent. That's the place that Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, in the very same way I'm sending you. Okay? So we've been commissioned by God. Christ is sending us out to do the work that he has started. In Mark 16, 15, the core of the mission is to go and proclaim the gospel to every creature. That proclamation or preaching in some, it's the same word, it's to herald it, it's to share it, it's to proclaim it so that everybody knows it. And so at, at its most basic level, it is the proclamation of the gospel that we're to do. In Luke's gospel, at the very last part of that book, we're told the basis of our mission. 
And we see it like this. Jesus showed them everything written about himself in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, that they must be fulfilled. And so as a result, I am sending you. In other words, you begin to show them that the story of this whole book is about what you've experienced. That's what God has been leading us to is the opportunity for you to join on mission with him. And then the one we know so well, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the content of our mission is focused on making disciples, making disciples of all wherever we go. And we are to go everywhere. Go and make disciples. And he even tells us a little bit about that discipling process. Baptizing is to be a part of it. And teaching them obedience is a part of it. I hope you caught that. He doesn't say teach them knowledge. Teach them obedience. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Not simply teach them everything I commanded you. And I think sometimes we've made a mistake there. And we think it's all about information overload. I so appreciate that Pastor Travis, when he prayed, reminded us that it's about transformation, not information. So does it change our hearts? Does it capture us with the desire to do what God has called us to do? Teach them obedience. And then the final one is the Acts 1.8. And this is where the element of the Spirit is involved. The plan of our mission talks about how we are empowered by the Spirit and how our plan needs to be intentional. When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Five times suggest this is really important. In Bible days, they didn't have yellow highlighters to say, this is important, catch this. They didn't underline things. They didn't capitalize all the letters to tell you, catch this, this is important. What they did was they repeated over and over and over. So if they're repeating it five times, it's pretty important for us to get this, don't you think? He is inviting us into this mission with him. Now for his disciples, the precursor of this was in Luke chapter 9, where they're sent out and, and they go across the... Uh, the land sent at two by two to go and to share in ministry. They come back, they are debriefed. 72 are then sent out in Luke chapter 10. The, the circle starts expanding. Do you see that? All of this is kind of the initial fledgling commissions for them before they receive these commissions and the opportunities to experience what is taking place in their lives. These same disciples now are given these commissions at what we call the beginning of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there they are no longer called disciples, but apostles, sent out ones. Disciples, the primary word that's used in the gospels for them, followers, pupils, learners. But now in Acts, as Jesus ascends, they are apostles, sent out ones to go and to make disciples, to share the good news, to participate in this mission with him. The church today continues this responsibility. We continue to obey these commands as a part of our sentness, following the Spirit's direction on our lives, individually and collectively. So, let me move us then to this idea of some motivating factors 
um, before we make some final comments tonight. Now, um, I think for the early church, the primary thing that motivated them was the reality that Jesus was coming back. You know, in technical terms, and I don't mean to use a big word here, but I'm going to, it's called eschatology. It is the, the doctrine of lost things. And, and this idea of a world that was coming to an end that might be soon led them to feel like this was urgent. We've got to share. We need to share. We must share this gospel with other people so that they have the opportunity to know what we already know. And you see that in the scripture in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.2. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It's going to fall on us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5.14, Paul talks about his own desire. The love of Christ compels us, persuades us, since we have reached this conclusion that once died for all, therefore all died. Later in that very same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, For now, at an acceptable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation, calling the people to respond accordingly. And here's one I didn't put on, the, uh, on your outline sheet, but you really need to write this down too. Mark, uh, Mark 13, 10. Where Jesus, when he is giving his statement of the last days to the apostles, when they ask him, when will these things happen? He says, it is necessary for the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations. Then the end will come. Did you hear that? It is necessary. He uses a verbal form in the original language that he talks about. The same verbal form that he used when he talked about his own death and resurrection. You know, I'm going to go through this, and he repeats it over and over again. It's necessary. It's necessary. He, he used the same word when he talked about having to go into Samaria to see the Samaritan woman at the well. It is necessary. We must go through Samaria. That's the word he's using here. It absolutely must happen. The gospel must be proclaimed to the ta ethna. The same words that are used at the end of Matthew's gospel when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities. Same words. So you see how passionate and how urgent this message is. And the, the, the early apostles, they picked up on this. And so it, it drove them to do whatever they could do to see that the gospel was shared wherever they could. Now, here's another motivating factor. There are eternal destinies for each and every one of us, heaven and hell. And Jesus talks about this a lot. Um, life eternal is reserved for the redeemed of God. Those that have come into relationship with him that are followers of Christ. Everlasting punishment for those who are, who are without him. Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46 paints the picture of this in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let me just read the contrast between the two. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In contrast, he turns to those on his left and he says, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Wasn't prepared for you, but that's where you're going to end up if you don't turn and follow me. Now that's the challenge that 
these early disciples and apostles picked up on and said, man, we got to go out and we got to tell. We got to proclaim this gospel because it will help bring Christ back to us. But we also need to tell them because there's an ultimate destiny at stake for each of them eternally in their lives. And we don't want anyone to miss out on the opportunity to fellowship and commune with God. The ultimate objective, of course, is seen in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. And there that passage of scripture, again, something we looked at last week. After this, I looked, there was a vast multitude of every tribe, every nation, every people, every language. No one could number them standing before the throne and before the lamb. Every people group surrounding the throne of God in worship. That's the picture that's painted. The ultimate objective that ought to drive us to do whatever we can do. So in Matthew chapter 6, we say in the model prayer that we learn, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer that we are taught to pray. And I'm wondering, why is it that God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven today? It's certainly not God's fault, right? <laughs> He's doing his part. So the challenge is, are we tuned in and are we listening to what he would say and then obedient in responding to him? So let me speak to this as we close. Well, just give me two or three more minutes. We'll get through it. You see, God's at work. He's on mission. He invites us to join him in what he's doing. I hope you caught that. That's uh, the great message of the Bible is that God in his mission has been working from the foundation of the world to bring us back into fellowship with him. And now he has invited us to be a part of that process to invite others to come and participate in being in that redemptive family as well. That mission is very clear. Our part, I think, is also very clear. But there's two myths that kind of float around in the world today uh, for us, that, that missions is a super special assignment for extraordinary people, that's one of them. I can't do it. I can't be on mission with God because I'm not this super special uh, hero type that can go out and, you know, do anything and everything that is necessary uh, for God. That's a mistake. The, the message and the mission is, is for ordinary people. It's for you and me. It's for all of us. If you go back and look at those disciples, they were extraordinarily ordinary. Um, even the Sanhedrin said, these people aren't learned. They, they, they aren't uh, exceptional. Why is it that they have such boldness? Because of their commitment to Christ, right? And the second one is that world missions can be done by proxy. That's the second myth, by proxy. That we can have other people do it for us, or we can just send our money and, and our prayers, and we don't have to do anything personally to be involved. Now, I do not want you to hear me say we should not pray or we should not give. We should do both of those things to support missions. Because not all of us are ever gonna be called to India or China. I, I understand that. But all of us have been called to be on mission with God. If you're a part of the family of Christ, you are called to be on mission with Him. And that means your neighbor next door or your coworker. That may mean a family member that has had a hard time in coming to realize and understand the, the part that God wants to play in his heart and his life. He's not really willing to make that decision yet. We're all called to be involved. You cannot pass it off and say, that's, 
Pastor Travis or it's Rocky Creek as a church's responsibility. I don't have any personal role or responsibility in that. We all do. We all do. That's part of the theology of mission. It's on all of us. In fact, one of the great preachers of years past, Charles Spurgeon, used to say this. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's pretty strong, don't you think? Well, let me flip the theological coin and quote the same thing from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray, the Scottish preacher, devotionalist, used to say every Christian is either a soul winner or a backslider. Doesn't get much better, does it? You see, we're supposed to be on mission. That's a part of our responsibility. We talk about Annie Armstrong a lot at the North American Mission Board. Uh, she is the namesake for which we and the WMU uh, try to rally folks in our country to do whatever is necessary to reach the peoples that are here in the world, in, in our continent. Why is that? Well, Annie Armstrong in 1893 wrote over 14,000 handwritten notes to people, pastors, churches, to encourage them to support missionaries in North America. Now you've got to remember, no cut and paste back then. No mimeograph or you know, uh, Xerox machines. This is all handwritten over 14,000 letters. And in those letters, she would write something like this. Men and means were not forthcoming fast enough for the great work of foreign missions. So God turned the stream this way and sent great masses of the unevangelized to come in contact with Christians living here in America. Have you seen that in your neighborhood? The world has come to us. And Annie Armstrong believes that part of the reason is God is sending them here so it is easier for us to share the message with them if we will just be on mission. Now I'm gonna leave you with a thought here. If we don't join God in his work, we show ourselves to be practical atheist. That means Simply, we say we believe in God, but we don't do what he commands. Or universalist, well, I believe God won't send anybody to hell. He doesn't. They make that choice themselves, by the way. But we think, okay, if I'm a universalist, it doesn't matter what I do. They're all going to be saved regardless of whether I say anything or not. Or we're dispassionate elitist. And I liken that to the guy in the Old Testament we talked about last week, Jonah. Elitist, he felt he was better than these other people. He didn't want them to become followers of God. And so he didn't have the love in his heart that was necessary for lost people. He wasn't compassionate. He wasn't burdened for the lost people around him. And if we're not careful, we can be there too and think of ourselves that way. You see, God's people often fail to embrace the mission because we have our own agenda instead of God's agenda, which is his mission. But our prayer and our service should truly be, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. Let me put it another way. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come, in Greenville as it is in heaven. Amen? That's where we need to be able to say, here am I, send me. Send me to my next door neighbor. Send me to my coworker. He's not going to send most of us, I already said this, to Russia. <laughs> He's going to send you to your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, that person that you encounter all the time without Christ. 
Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love for us. A love that sent Jesus, your one and only Son, to earth on our behalf so that we might come into relationship with you as we believe in him and turn away from our sins. We thank you that he came on mission for you and that now you have enabled us to be a part of that mission, that you have given us the opportunity to join you. It is a co-mission. You have not abandoned the mission. You have invited us to join you in the mission. And so as co-partners in this mission, 